Are you listening? Stai ascoltando? Voi slusciate? The Global Voices Podcast. The world is talking. Are you listening? Hello, world, and welcome to another edition of the Global Voices Podcast. I'm your audio friend, Jamila. In this edition, you can hear about the ripple effect of the Arab revolutions, find out what it is to be a digital mentor, and talk through some of the ideas that make up a good code of ethics online. First, a reminder of what was happening earlier this year. Tunisia had seen upheaval, and Egypt was in the throes of changing too. One of our authors, Maria Grabowski-Kia, has been in Cairo recently to get a perspective on how people are feeling after months of upheaval. 28th of January, that bloody day, I couldn't stay silent anymore. I was looking from the window to see the people dead in the streets, the policemen killing them, shooting them. Why? Because they said no, they don't have the right to do so. That's why I decided to to join and to start my activities. It's the most nice and painful feelings right now. I don't know how or why, but we are not the same like before. Some people are afraid to go out of the square now because they know and sure if they went out of the square, they will be dead. They will be killed. We are camping, we are sleeping in the tents. We have homes and some people have no homes. That's why we decided to join them, to sleep in the streets because we are all Egyptians, and we will never go back home until we complete our revolution. The people are worried and scary. They didn't try to involve the political life before, but they were not allowed. But now every single Egyptian has to join the political life, because it's his right, it's our rights. So they are confused as well, and some of them are angry like me, some of them are sad, like me. One of my foreigner friends, I don't know why, but he told me that you look like Jivahara, not in the shape, but I'm fighting and fighting, I'm always thinking about Egypt. I told him one thing, we are 85 million Jivahara. We did it, the revolution. We will complete it, whatever, whatever happened. Nothing will stop us. Egyptians are good people. And I wish if all the world would hear all our voices. Selmay. That's what we were telling them all the time from the day one. It's Selmeya. It's peaceful. Peace is all what we are asking for and freedom. And I think it's not that much for us. I'm confused and angry and sad and happy and dreaming. I will always dream. Though each country has its own reason and method for the uprising, there has been some support across borders as protesters take the examples of one country into their own, or show support for events elsewhere. Maria met people outside the Syrian embassy in Cairo, where this woman was expressing her opinion about Syria's President Assad and her sympathies for the Syrian people. that we are against him and we want him to leave. 
I guess yesterday he killed uh, more than 100 people in Hama. It's a um, it's a place in Syria. So how far does the effect of this movement spread? As this year sees the Arab Spring, has the rest of the continent seen an African Spring? Ndesanjo Macha is our editor for Sub-Saharan Africa. He's based in Zambia, and we talked about the translation of the protests within that region. After the Arab revolutions, we have seen that people in the region have been inspired, seen all the possibilities that are there to use social media to organize, to try to improve their lives in the, uh, the democratic systems in the region. And are there specific examples of events where people have used media for this type of reason? Yes. First, we've seen a lot of demonstrations and protests after the Arab Spring in different countries, uh, like Gabon back in January and February, Djibouti in February, and then Ivory Coast also in February. In Uganda, there has been a walk-to-work protest uh, since, um, I believe, March or April. Same with Swaziland. All of these, although the, the level of connection is not as much advanced as in Egypt or Tunisia, but we have seen activists trying to use you know, Facebook and Twitter and blogs to share photos, share videos, just to let people you know what's happening. Has the action been more peaceful? Because we've seen a lot of violence and bloodshed in the North African, Middle Eastern region because of the clashes with governments. Has it been mostly peaceful in the sub-Saharan African region? Back in July, there were activists in Malaya organized a series of demonstrations following the rising prices of fuel and food. People were reported to be to have been killed by the police. And I'll say this was, we'll say, probably the most violent. An instance where we've seen the government using so much power to suppress a popular uprising. People were not killed, but they were arrested. People were arrested and detained. The same also happened in, uh, in Uganda. We saw the, the leader of the main opposition part in Uganda, Cuba, the seizure, was attacked by the police. He had to be taken to Nairobi in for treatment. Are the authorities and the police aware of the use of social media, do they monitor this to find out what is happening? They are aware because we saw that in Cameroon, the government decided to ban SMS to Twitter. The same thing happened in Uganda during the elections. Facebook and Twitter, whilst it was difficult to access these two social network sites, the Minister of Security in Uganda said that protesters are using social media to prepare young people for war. So you can see um, that leaders, government seems to know that there's so much power in, in the use of social media. And I think they'll try everything to either block or threaten people. Uh, in Cameroon, for example, they call bloggers cyber terrorists. How are people staying safe then? Are, are they likely to be identified or found out via their blogs? There are people who um, blog or have um, used um, different names online, but there are bloggers who use their own names. So, in like Ethiopia, we know Ethiopia, Zimbabwe, you expect a lot of people to go online anonymous, that compared to like Tanzania or, or Kenya. 
there are instances where people feel safer to be online anonymously, and there are situations where people uh, use their real names. Um, there are many leading political bloggers in Uganda and Kenya use their names, but also there are many other leading bloggers that I know of in Zimbabwe who will never try to use their own names. Are you hopeful that they will succeed, that there will be some change? I hope so, that's my hope. The Arab Spring and a few of the protests that we've seen in Southern Africa, first they have inspired a lot of young people. They have sparked a conversation about what is possible. They have shown ordinary people that they're able to change the political system. And I hope that more people are aware of what is possible, more people are technologically connected, more people um, educated, know what's happening in the countries, because we also have, we have a big chunk of people who really don't care about a lot of things. I mean, they, they are so caught up in the daily struggles, they're trying to make ends meet. If you tell them about bill of rights, they are more likely to be concerned about electricity or water bills than bill of rights. So I'm hopeful that we'll see change hopefully in the near future. I also had a chat with one of our authors, Steve Sherrard, who is in Malawi. Though Malawi is not seeing upheaval in the same way, there are repercussions that show a strong connection to events in North African countries. I think there are things that are quite similar and then there are things that are quite different. Maybe if we would begin with the similarities, a story would illustrate this better. On February the 12th, a University of Malawi professor, Dr. Blessing Stensinger, was giving a lecture at Chancellor College. It's a constituent college of the University of Malawi. He was giving a lecture. He's a political scientist. And in that lecture, he suggested that things that were happening in Tunisia and Egypt could be a result of uh, discontent, white discontent amongst the population. And sometimes that discontent is caused by problems in the basic structure of the economy and also uh, the political atmosphere. So he gave the example of uh, shortages of uh, forex, for example, or shortages of uh, fuel, for example. And that was a time when Malawi was undergoing those problems. We have been undergoing a scarcity of fuel and forex and related and other problems for quite a while now. They, they come in spasms and they go, but I think currently this is the longest spasm. I, I think for the fuel shortage, it's now three months since it started. There was one in December, another one in between, so they come and go. So he gave that example, and it uh, looks as if amongst his students there was a, either an informer, I think a spy sent by the government, or I am also told that, in fact, there are police officers that are taking courses at the University of Malawi, and it, it might be that uh, this person was a student in that course. But what happened was this person went to their bosses, uh, police, senior police officers, and reported Dr. Chinsinga. And uh, this went all the way up to the, the chief of police in Malawi, the inspector general of uh, the Malawi police, Mr. Peter Mukita. 
Peter Mkhita was very alarmed. So he drove down from the capital city, Lilongwe, to Zomba, the city where he had according to his, and uh, invited uh, Dr. Chinsinga, where some people said he was someone, but others said he was invited. I think it was a big difference between those two words, but uh, they met and uh, the Inspector General asked Dr. Chinsinga to explain his example. Since that day, there hasn't been classes at Chancellor College. In fact, the bark of the University of Malawi has been shaken by that incident because the lecturers stopped teaching and said they needed to have their academic freedom guaranteed by uh, the chief of police as well as by the president. And since then, it's been a crisis. There's been no learning there. And some four lecturers have been uh, fired, uh, but the matter is in court. That, I think, story for me illustrates the connection between what's happening in Malawi right now and what has happened in North Africa in a general sense. Somehow the government, I think, was scared that Malawians uh, were watching this and uh, they could act on, on those influences. So on the differences... The causes of the current crisis in Malawi are Malawians. I think this is a Malawian agenda. Malawians dissatisfied with what's happening on the political scene as well as the economic scene, and Malawians wanting change. So it's a purely Malawian agenda, but it shares parallels with what's happened in North Africa. And do you think people are inspired? Are they watching the events in what's happening in North Africa and thinking they might do the same? Yes and no. Yes, because on social media forums, on Twitter, on Facebook, in the, in the forums, you see Tunisia and Egypt discussed. You see people mentioning it. You see people, they were supposed to be what the organizers were calling a video. On the 20th of July, there was a demonstration. They carried a petition. It had lots of items asking the president to address. It turned ugly. Uh, Nineteen people were killed. They were shot by the police. And they had given him a deadline. They had asked him to respond to their concerns by a certain date, uh, without which they were going to stage another demonstration. They cancelled it, and you saw frustration amongst Malawians online. So I think I saw one Malawian say, this is so disappointing. We are not yet at the level of Tunisia or Egypt, because if we were Egyptians, we would have gone ahead and we would have staged nationwide strikes and demonstrations, and we would have sent our message across. So you do see people who use North Africa as their reference point. But on the other hand, this is a purely Malawian context, and I think that Malawians who are saying this is very good that it's been postponed because people were afraid that there's going to be more loss of life. Is there a divide between the people who are active online and the people that they are hoping will join them in activism in real life? Yes. I think one of the telling explanations came online yesterday on Twitter, and I included this in the roundup I did for Global Voices. It was a very busy day. People were expecting final announcements and final preparations for the video and demonstrations. And then there were press conferences, cancelling and Another group said, no, we're going ahead. And one person wrote on Twitter and said, 
as far as the average Malawian in the village, they have no TV, they have no radio, they have no internet. For them, this video is on because that's what they've been hearing for the past three, four weeks. And so for us, we are learning that it's not on and we are, seeing, we are learning through Twitter and through Facebook and through the TV, through radios. And these Malawians don't have that. So for them, it's going to be on. So that kind of gap exists. I think the statistics are very abysmal. Um, only about 23%, I think, of Malawians have access to mobile phones, for example, and many of those phones are not even internet-enabled. So as of June 2010, there were 716,000 400 internet users in Malawi out of an estimated population of 15,879,000 people. So that's 4.5% of the population has internet. Although part of it has been online, a lot of it hasn't been online. So a lot of it has been on radio and uh, I think distributing flyers and uh, word of mouth, that kind of information uh, outreach. Do you know about Global Voices Lingua? Project Lingua amplifies Global Voices stories in languages other than English with the help of volunteer translators. It opens the line of communication with non-English speaking bloggers and readers of Global Voices by translating content into other languages. Find out more at globalvoicesonline/lingua. It's interesting that Steve Shara shared digital statistics there for Malawi. The penetration of digital tools and online access in African countries may have grown, but there's still a lot of work to do. But there's good news too. Ten of our seasoned Global Voices bloggers and 11 activists are working together virtually at the moment. This is part of a new initiative developed by us and Activista, the youth network of the international development organisation ActionAid. How cool is that? You're right, it's very cool. I caught up with one of our bloggers, Nwach Mbunike, in Nigeria, who's working with David Haber, also in Nigeria, and asked him what it's like to be a mentor. I'm working with very young Nigerian, David Haber, in northeast Nigeria. I think I am the only person, or one of those, who are working with the same person from their country. So I'm working with David. What is it that you hope to teach them? Everything. <laughs> Everything, everything, everything I can teach them. Essentially, I'll be concentrating a lot on writing a good post because for me, that's what captures the essence of writing. The skills of blogging, there are a thousand and one sites where anyone can easily lay hands on and get that. But to write a good post entails a lot. And I've been lucky that I also got people who mentored me and who made sure that I learned how to write well. Also, one other thing I will try to inspire or move David to do is to make sure that he reads a lot. He reads a lot and he reads widely. Because it will help a lot. The more you read them, the better you write. Besides also encouraging, and which is what you're already doing presently, to work well and on target. Goodness, it sounds like we could all benefit from working with you and your, your brilliant <laughs> advice. So what's the best thing for you then about being a mentor? I do think that um, basically it's about building friendships that we last for a very long time. To be able to transmit the same fire as the fear that I have, the same passion, I have for my country, 
for my continent and of course to the world itself. And I think the best thing about being a mentor is not just about transmitting the skills, but also transmits that same passion. And eventually to someone who will not only continue to transmit that after I'm long gone or before I'm long gone, but eventually I hope she surpass me. Sharing skills for future generations online, an admirable task, not to mention the fun of being inspired by new voices. Do you know about Global Voices Advocacy? With Global Voices Advocacy, we seek to build a global anti-censorship network of bloggers and online activists throughout the developing world dedicated to protecting freedom of expression and free access to information online. Find out more at globalvoicesonline.org. Now, as citizen journalism grows and becomes ever more sophisticated, is it necessary for authors to abide by a code of ethics? Afa Fabrugi is from Tunisia, and she's a Global Voices contributor. Lately, she's brought a set of ethics into discussion, and Rezwan, our editor for South Asia, based in Bangladesh, matched some of her points with his own linked contributions. You can find these in our podcast blog post. I asked both of them to join me in discussion about the ethical codes online, and if they are required, or even possible, on a global scale. Afif begins here by explaining how she was working with other people who came up with one particular code of ethics. I was in Beirut to take part in a training organized by the National Democratic Institute. The topic of the training was citizen journalism, professionalism and ethics. The aim of the training was actually to improve the reporting standards of citizen journalists. And there was a consensus among the trainees and the trainers that the code of ethics is necessary to make citizen journalists more professional and increase their reporting standards. At the end of the training, actually in the last session of the training, citizen journalists from MENA region and Iran wrote this code in collaboration with traditional journalists. This code of ethics, it calls citizen journalists to be transparent, fair, accurate, and to credit original authors to avoid profanity and fabricating stories. Rezwan, the idea of a code of ethics for citizen journalists seems similar to codes published in the past, as Afif just mentioned, for bloggers. Is it interesting that the codes are very similar? Do you see similar themes in the way that this is developing? Yes, they are similar because the scope is almost similar to have an environment of the publications should be the blog posts or any other social media post should be transparent and accurate. The thing is that there are issues where we have seen trolls and other abuses happening where we see that a blogger is writing on a controversial topic and people try to attack the freedom of speech and bloggers. And there are also abuse of this freedom of speech where we have seen issues like plagiarism and commercial interest people are matching other posts to spam blogs. So these kind of things are always happening and, and these are, all, of course, a threat to the social media and the freedom of speech of the general citizen journalists. I think these courts are efforts to try to address those situations. It's nice to draw up a code, but is it possible to get people to stick to that code, to be transparent? Because if you're a commercial blogger, in some ways, it might pay you not to say exactly what's going on there and then more people believe you. It's not a, a nice thing necessarily or it's certainly ethically questionable. But 
Is it hard to influence people to ask them to stick to a code of ethics? Due to recent developments in the Arab world, I think it's not that difficult to, con to convince people to stick to, to such codes of ethics, especially with the gay girl in Damascus hoax, which created a buzz on both social and traditional media. I believe that more cyber activists, citizen journalists and bloggers became more open to the idea of a code of ethics, which is actually a positive thing. Should people define their position then if they are an ethical blogger or an activist or a citizen journalist or a more general blogger just to help us to understand maybe what their intentions are? Yes, yeah, citizen journalism is a white term because uh, nowadays everybody can be a citizen journalist if they have a mobile phone or other means to communicate. There are different roles of a uh, citizen journalist. For example, the person who is just uh, sending a Twitter message of uh, something happening in front of him or her, he is also a citizen journalist. I think his job is completed almost after that, and he doesn't require any code of ethics. There are other people who are working with uh, some institute or doing some commercial form of citizen journalism, and uh, in those places, uh, there are already three codes of ethics. In the general team of uh, bloggers, uh, there are also some ethics. And I see the social network is, are actually uh, fragmented uh, networks. For example, I have a blog and people know, know me by my actions, by my posts. If I use profanity, and uh, I think many of my readers will not agree to that and will oppose that. So most of these uh, codes of ethics are being regulated by the readers themselves and by the network itself. Afeth, do you agree that you might have a code of ethics set out by other writers or contributors, but in fact your audience or your network will tell you when you're going wrong? Some people have feared that, I mean, codes of ethics might put restrictions on their freedom of speech, but codes of ethics do not represent any kind of censorship and Traditional journalists have their own code of ethics, which encourages them to seek and report the truth. And this has nothing to do with censorship. I think it's the same thing for, for citizen media. I think that codes of ethics are now necessary to not, I don't want to use, I mean, uh, the word, I mean, to restrict or to limit, but to, to make things clear. You make and write codes of ethics and publish them on our own and follow them on our own to convince these people who have suspicions that we're serious and we're not creating rumors or anything else. When it comes to transparency, for some citizen journalists, they may be in a place or a country where it's more dangerous for them to be quite as transparent as, say, the freedoms that I have here in the UK. Yes. So does that make it harder to try and adhere to these things? Because you may want to use a pseudonym or a, a different name or make it more difficult for people to find you. But that also makes us question who people really are. First, they have to tell that they are in that place under these circumstances and they can't really tell who they are. But following them and following their report, then we can tell if they are saying the truth or not because, after all, people are not stupid or idiot. They can tell if someone is not telling the truth. There isn't much that we can do except that we encourage people who are, I mean, under certain circumstances to tell that they are 
encountering certain troubles and they can tell who they are. Reswan, would you agree that because the laws are different in different countries, it can dictate different activities online? Do you think that codes of ethics or best practice might be different depending on which country you're in? There is a danger if you try to follow all the guidelines and rules of a country. Uh, for example, in some regimes, there are uh, strict uh, rules of homosexuality and other things, but there are many people who are talking about sex and other issues uh, online, and those things may be against the rules. But that's the beauty of blogging and, and the social media, that you can uh, you can free yourself, you can use pseudonyms, and you can act- actually talk about those things. And talking about all these uh, course of ethics, I think this, this should only be used as a reference or best practice because there are some blocks, for example, there can be a block from a terrorist. Would you try to stop that? I think it may be interesting to follow, read that or uh, to try to find out what those persons are trying to say or trying to do. Course of ethics may be different in different countries or regimes, but I think those should be only a reference. Those should not be imposed because there can be some exceptions. Well, that's all we have for now, but you know there's always something else to talk about, and we'll be back next month. If you'd like to get in touch about this podcast, you can drop me a line to podcast at globalvoicesonline.org. More details about our authors and topics are available on the podcast blog notes. The Global Voices Podcast. The world is talking. I hope you've been listening. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at Global Voices. You can follow Global Voices stories on Facebook too.